So hi, everybody. This is the the bumper to the podcast. You'll get to hear our normal welcome in a minute. It's Danielle and Steve. We're, we got a little, uh, what do we call this, Steve? We want to give a, you an update. Yeah, this is an update. It's a, a promotion. It's, a, well, telling you stuff that you ought to know. Um, and this one is about, let's just say it, it's about the weather planning for mass gatherings workshop. That we um, used as, to call the Severe Weather Summit. Right. It's the weather <laughs> thing that the Event Safety Alliance does. We bring smart meteorologists and people who need to know what smart meteorologists can do, and we put them all into a room, and we shake vigorously, and people learn things <laughs> like how to... I well, just have a terrible vision of shaking heaven yeah, place like all a, our, like our a weather snow globe experts. Of yeah. Meteorologists, <laughs> oh dear, <and laughs> no people. So, so as I said, this used to be called the Severe Weather Summit. We've been toying with uh, a new name that better reflects what the content actually is. So, weather planning for mass gatherings workshop, which is a mouthful and a little bit hard ponderous. To, ponderous, ponderous. Was the word yes, you used, po- yes, it was ponderous. <laughs> uh, so, you know. We're still workshopping that, but the workshop itself, if you've been before, is is fantastic. Uh, same, same general idea. It's going to be at the University of Texas at Austin, um, and the dates are? January 4 and 5, 2023. So that is, oh, it's like a month from now. Um, get your, your tickets soon. And you can do that from our website, which is? which is, last I checked, eventsafetyalliance.org. Yep, and a little window pops up when you log on, so you don't even have to know any extensions like slash events. And there are both in-person and virtual options. So if you can't get to Texas in January, but you want to see the content anyway, you can sign up for the virtual one. And and that is, well, that's a really cool opportunity um, because mm-hmm. this is an incredibly useful conference, you know, it's not like when we were kids where the meteorologist this week was the sports guy last week. Meteorological science is <laughs> no, really- No, these people, worth... this is science. <laughs> this is science. This is this is smart people with advanced degrees. And, you know, they're not just looking at their cell phone app, you know, like we do. They are not um, atmospheric scientists. No. Um, and there will be Thank many- Thank you, Kevin Claisel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dr. Claisel will bring many punny comments and you know there are other smart people who are less punny than he is, but still super smart. And the intersection between meteorological science and events is very significant. So this is a conference, conference workshop that has always been useful and seems even more necessary as yep. there are more outdoor events than ever before. And frankly, you know, ninety percent of my events are indoors. And it's still extremely useful for me because you know what? People travel through the weather. We have to load in through the weather. The weather may affect what we're doing in terms of emergency planning. So weather affects you, whether you're inside or not. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, I, who until this year would always make fun of the fact that I lived in one of the very few places in the United States that has no weather at all, just hot and nice. Having now moved from the desert back to the Northeast. Welcome back to weather. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, back to weather. I'm totally overwhelmed by the different meteorological phenomena. My weather changes hourly, and that has manifestations for all sorts of things that one can plan for if you know that's what's going to happen. So all right. that's that's so what the that's weather your... planning for mass, for gatherings, mass gatherings workshops workshop. yeah. is about. <laughs> all right. Uh, one, one last plug as we wrap this up, you know, it's a good time to become a member because you get a discount if you're a member and our membership rates will go up on January 1st. So this is also a fantastic time to uh, become a member or to get a membership for a friend of yours who always would benefit from joining the ESA. Stocking stuffer. Uh, stocking stuffer. All right, everybody. Enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Danielle Hernandez. And, you know, guys, if you listen to a pod that we did uh, probably last month, maybe a little bit before that, 
there was a point in the conversation where I was like, barricades, I want to talk more about barricades. I could do a whole podcast on barricades. Guess what, guys? Today, we're going to do a whole podcast on barricades. And I am joined today with what we would call a subject matter expert on barricades. Uh, this is Tim Roberts, director of the Event Safety Shop and member of the board of directors of the Event Safety Alliance. Tim, welcome to the pod. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so uh, let's, let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Event Safety Shop does? For sure. My favorite subject to talk about myself. Um, <laughs> uh, the Event Safety Shop, uh, I, I guess you could best describe us as tiny giants. We're a little company based out of the UK, um, but with branches in uh, in the US, in the Middle East, in Hong Kong, in South China, um, and soon to be elsewhere, um, providing a specialist uh, safety and production consultation service to the global event business. Um, we do events of all types, all scales, all sorts of locations, whether it's... Um, Oh, I don't know, mass participation sports events with tens of thousands of runners or cyclists or people raising money for something, or if it's festivals, concert touring, uh, fashion shows, movie launches, stunts and craziness um, that people want to do, uh, basically wherever an audience gather. Uh, and that audience could be indoors, they could be outdoors, they could be on a ship. Uh, you know, we've done the uh, uh, things like tall ships race and the International Festival of the Sea. Uh, so we're pretty familiar with doing stuff on water as well. So that's us. We've been going since um, turn of the millennium. Um, uh, and as I say, we've got kind of global reach, but it's a very small team of people. Um, if you want to join, then <laughs> <laughs> no, I shouldn't shamelessly pitch this scene in the, in the podcast. Um, yeah, that's what we do. Um, uh, everyone in the company comes from production background. So we've been there, not necessarily been there and done it because that's a bit boastful, but we, you know, we know how wide a fencing panel is. We know how heavy a Harris block is. Uh, you know, we know how to tour, we know how to build, we know how to construct because we've been there in kind of professional careers before becoming accredited and uh, qualified safety uh, professionals. Um, and I think that stands us in good stead because it means the advice we give is yeah, quintessentially practical. Uh, and we're not and re relatable. You're not speaking yeah, in a language that people don't get. Pilots. We're not people <laughs> walk around, you know, walk around with a clipboard and the red biro and just say, no, 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 no. Our ethos is yes, if. That's usually the hardest thing we have to say to a client is yes, if. Uh, and the if might be spend another million bucks. Or the if might be, hey, if we close this door and open that one and move them around that way, whatever it, whatever it may be, um, our, our process is always about achieving the client's objective, whatever that objective is, uh, and to do that safely and to protect the staff, the talent, the building, and of course, the audience. Yeah. So to be clear, you, you're handling safety stuff, not just for technical production, but also crowd, crowds and, and their experience. Yes, yes. Okay. It really depends on what the client wants, you know. Uh, right, uh, some exactly. Of clients, some of our clients, they want a detailed risk assessment on motor control protocols, you know, to become uh, compliant with, um, you know, functional safety rules, which is all technical and nothing to do with the public. It's <laughs> how the things, how fix the metal, where is the metal, how does it work, how does the control system work. In other instances, we provide staff who stand there and say, go, no, go, yes, no, show, stop, carry on, whatever it Whatever's required by the client, whatever's, whatever, wherever safety drives us, um, but awesome. it, we're not a security company. We're a, we're a safety and um, uh, a, you know consultancy, right across the whole piece. Awesome. All right. So we're obviously like, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours about any number of the things that you've just hinted at in that. But today we're going to talk about barricades. So. If you work outdoor festivals or big outdoor concerts, you are more familiar with barricades than than the rest of us who, you know, I've been at plenty of things when people say, oh, barricades, you mean bike rack? And we'll, we'll get to that because um, generally the answer is no. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. no. No, we don't mean bike rack. And we'll talk about why we don't mean bike rack. Um, but... Uh, let, let's start at the beginning. When we're talking about barricade, first of all, what is it for? 
What do we mean? What, is what it do called? we mean when we're talking barricades? Okay, is this well, Les Mis? Is this Les Mis? We're mounting the barricades. French Revolution. All right, I want musical theater. Sorry, let's go back to <laughs> let's go let's go back to rock and roll. <laughs> I, I think it's a really good place to start. Um, but I will rewind even one step more. Um, I don't necessarily know more about this than anybody else on the call. I think uh, I would never make that claim. I wouldn't even claim to be an expert. All I can do is just relay the experience that I've garnered over the uh, over the sort of uh, thirty years or so I've been in the production business on one side of the barricade or another. Um, so I don't wish to set my, and also I should point out, I don't rent, sell, handle, warehouse, stock, or supply barricade. Of Which any makes you the perfect person to talk yeah, about. Well, maybe. And I guarantee okay. you know more about barricade than I do right now, but at the end of this call, I'll be closer. Excellent. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, what are barricades? What do we mean when we use that term? Um, any kind of event, regardless really of what it is, requires some sort of physical separation between different bits of territory. And that is done for all kinds of different reasons. So for example, you might need a fence around the outside of your, uh, of your venue where you're charging ticket money to get in. If you have the benefit of a permanent venue, you've generally got fixed walls and doors and people come through the doors once they bought a ticket to get into your show. So that's how you manage your perimeter, who's in and who's not in. Um, on outdoor shows, then you need some kind of barricade, some physical obstruction to stop people just streaming in. So that's one kind of barrier, but that's not a barricade. That's something that is likely to be hoarding fencing, which is kind of six and a bit foot high, um, solid steel facing, or it could be the block and mesh fencing, which certainly in Europe just goes by the generic trade name of Harris um, following the company who originally made it. Um, but it's a kind of steel mesh on a framework and you've got heavy concrete or rubber blocks that the thing slots into. You know the stuff, I hope. Um, and that's really good for making big perimeters, making a back of house area, for making a sort of difficult to climb, but not impossible um, sort of structure that keeps people out of places where you don't want them to be. Um, it's usually got bracing on it so you can stick a, a mesh or a scrim or a hoarding or advertising or whatever on it um, to make it opaque if you want to. So that's a kind of barricade, but that's not what we're going to talk about. Other things where you might use physical materials to separate bits of your site um, come to bike rack. So it's called bike rack because it looks exactly <laughs> like a frame that you could just slot a bunch of bicycles into to park them. Um, so it's kind of six and a bit foot long, um, just about, you know, a meter. So I'm going I'm to keep flipping between imperial and metric, but, you know, it's a kind of about a meter 20 high. Um, uh, and you can lift a couple of panels uh, if you're really going for it. You could probably lift three or four panels if you really went for it. Um, and that kind of stuff is used for low level, low impact delineation of areas very commonly used for queuing systems where people are walking along the, the the length of the barrier they're not being they're not coming at 90 degrees into the barrier they're walking down it so it's like for guiding queues because that kind of stuff bike rack is really really rubbish at resisting a horizontal push yeah so it doesn't take side loads at all really. it doesn't take side loads and when we get to talking about barrier and how to use it and what it's made of and how it works this concept of the side loading is really super important. So when I stand on the floor, I'm imposing a vertical load. Gravity's drawing me down to the center of the earth um, and I'm pushing on the floor and the floor is pushing back at me. But I, that's the easy bit. The hard bit is when you push sideways. And if you push sideways on the top of a piece of bike rack, even with one little pinky finger, you can tip it over. And if it's connected to all its buddies in a long line, yeah, okay, maybe you need the whole hand to push it over. But it's really not very good at resisting a horizontal force. And a horizontal force could be anything like, um, you know, the wind blowing against it, or more importantly, the public pushing against it or other things pushing against it. It, it can't resist that load. It hasn't got the legs for it. It literally hasn't got the legs for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, so basically, if you're anticipating that your queuing is going to have any side load on your bike rack, then bike rack may not be the best tool for the job. Yeah, but if bike rack is the only thing you've got, then right. you need to be smart about trying to give it a bigger foot. 
So if you had a runner bike rack and every four or five panels, you made a little triangle out of the same stuff, out of bike rack, going back away from it, then all of a sudden you've now braced that bike rack and that bike rack will take a million times more load. It's well, physics. Oh my gosh, it's it, physics in real life. It is. It? Well, yeah, physics does go on. <laughs> Science, guys. Science. Uh, well, I tell you what, I, when, when we get later on, we'll talk about physics in some bits, but also psychology, which is just as, uh, just as dangerous as that rules. Um, but you see what I mean? Imagine, you know, you're bracing that wall, uh, that, that, that fence line uh, with the same material, but you put it sideways on, it kind of gives it a, a rigidity. Um, and that's what you're looking for if something is pressing against it. Now, in the UK, uh, and I've not seen it in my world, in my time in the States, but in the UK, we have a kind of next step up for solidity. It's stuff that we call Met Barrier after the Metropolitan Police in London, because they used to be the only people who had it. Um, sometimes it's called Appleby Barrier after the designer, uh, and sometimes it's called Crush because it's good for Ah, no, hang on. I don't want to use the word crush because that's an emotive term. But what that is, is just imagine a piece of bike rack that's just a bit heavier. It's not quite as long as regular bike rack. It's got thicker metal. And on the bottom, it's got a triangular foot that sticks out maybe two foot, on, but only on one side. So it's smooth faced on one side. And then you've got this big triangle on the back. So if you put that out so that the smooth face is where the audience are or where the pressure may come from, it's pretty good at resisting pressure. So that's why it was called crush, because it would take a bit of a crush load, a bit of a sideways load, way better than, uh, way better than, than bike rack, standard barrier. Um, what else have we got? You know, there's a load of other barriers. You know, there's tensor barrier, which is just a fabric you know, a fabric uh, band, you know, like a truck strap that's mounted onto, you know, sort of extendable uh, reels. On you post. see them at air airports. Um, yeah, you in, see them at airports. In a lot of theaters. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, that's the barrier. So we use barrier in all kinds of different ways. Um, but the key thing, let's get to it. The key thing that we're talking about is what barrier is suitable to go in front of a performance deck or a stage. Um, I will usually default to talking about concert stages because that's the world I'm most commonly in. Um, but, you know, the same, if you need to resist horizontal pressure, then you need to have something that's strong enough and robust enough to resist the horizontal pressure because otherwise people fall over and it all goes bad. Um, so the kind of stuff we're talking about is what you see in front of concert stages. Now, that, that worldwide, for historical reasons, is generically called Mojo at times. From Mojo, who were the first, uh, you know, people who invented and deployed it and uh, and uh, and operated it. Um, there's loads of other manufacturers and suppliers. I don't need to go through the full list. Um, but if forgive me, everybody else, if I slip into calling it Mojo at times, I apologise. I'm not here on a brand uh, a brand experience. It's just that that's the generic, a bit like calling a vacuum cleaner Hoover. So with the front stage barrier then, uh, generally speaking, there is one principal design that's been copied and amended and adjusted by lots of other folks, um, which basically is a sort of vertical panel. You know what it looks like, I hope. Uh, a vertical panel that is braced with rigid bars on the back, sort of diagonally um, up to the sort of just below the, the, the top of the barricade. Um, and that itself sits on a wide footplate. So a single piece of it's usually about a meter wide, a meter 10 high, and front to back is about a meter as well if you count those foot plates on the floor. They all daisy chain together, some of them bolt, some of them pin, and you can make you know, an infinitely long run, uh, depends how many pieces of, of that stuff you've got. Key to it is that uh, those diagonal braces on the back are really good at taking the force pushing from the audience side. So the thing doesn't flop over, and it doesn't rotate around its back legs because the people who are doing the pushing are stood on the front footplate. So their weight is actually stabilizing the barricade itself. So that's a key part of how those uh, front stage barriers work. The audience is massive. You've got six people, eight people stood on that footplate at the front, then they are stabilizing the barricade itself. Um, the sorts of loads and the sorts of conditions we see in front of large stages can be demanding. So you need a barrier that is able to resist um, continuous load as people you know, are permanently pushing against it for the duration of an event. 
uh, but more importantly, shock loading as movements and ripples and compression waves move through a crowd who can be very dynamic and very active. They, you know, they may smack against that barricade, let's call it as it is. They may pile into that thing with significant force. And when you've got thousands of people doing that all at the same time, this needs to be a really robust system. So to my mind, the only acceptable material to put in front of a biggish stage is this specialist designed um, front stage barrier, whether you get it from Mojo or EPS or any other of the providers out there, it doesn't, it does matter because quality is super important, but I'm not here on the brand experience. Um, uh, but it but gotta be style. the right kind of stuff. It's gotta be the right style. Um, and if you think it's worthwhile, I can go through some of the key features that I would want to see. Um, absolutely, absolutely. I, I would like to know that. Also, um, I know that uh, if, if you guys go online and I'll see if I can find a link that we could put in the show notes where you can see waves moving through a crowd and, and interacting with these barricades at the front of the stage. And, and you can see them actually, actually flex as opposed to be um, like, like a brick wall. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's a couple of schools of thought on whether absolute rigidity is desirable um, or, or whether it's better to have um, some flex built in, but uh, that's probably a little too esoteric for an hour long podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay, so uh, my guess is that anyone who's listening to this this discussion and who may be thinking, ah, now you know, I'm I'm delivering a hundred thousand capacity concert next week. What barrier should I get? That person's in the wrong job if they're having to listen to this to decide. So my right. my guess <laughs> is that the, the folks who may be getting key information from this discussion are likely to be folks who are going, well, I've got this thing coming up. I'm not sure. Do, do I need this stuff or not? Where do I go to find it? How much does it cost me? Is it worth it? How do I make sure it's good? How do I make sure I've done the right thing um, with my audience um, and with other folks who are going to rely on it for protection? Um, so I think that's probably the place to, um, to try and pitch things. Um, <clears throat> So I would say that um, if, you're, if you're producing an event and you think, hmm, do I need specialist stage front barrier? The fact you've asked yourself that question is probably a kind of strong indicator that you probably do. Now, not all events need it. You know, by no means do all stages need a specialist front of stage pit barrier. It just isn't required for a gig where people are sat down enjoying a picnic, where they're you know evenly dispersed across a wide park, where they're going to sit and listen to some Vivaldi, and you know, grandma's going to be cutting pumpkin pie or whatever. You know, it's <laughs> if if folks are thinking, well, that's my kind of audience. I hear what you're saying. You, you I would suggest you don't need barricade the, the street festival with the little pop-up stage where there's a couple guys in it with a guitar and a little vocalist and people are listening and then they're moving on that's probably also another one that doesn't need this because it's never going to see that load right exactly exactly okay. um you know if you are concerned that you think well actually it it could get it could get um it could get busy then maybe you need to think of well what will i do um, just having a naked stage front where people are pushed up right against the stage is not good because it, it's not good for the performers, it's not good for the public viewing, uh, and it's a pretty significant security threat and people can get under the stage. Even if they're not choosing to, they might get pushed under the stage, which we need to avoid. So you need some kind of barrier. Uh, and as soon as you put a barrier there, you create a sterile zone between the downstage edge and where the public are. And that gives you space in which the staff work. So that's a really, really important function. It's quite easy to think of the stage front barrier as being just there to resist the push of the crowd. Well, it is doing that, but critically is also creating a working zone for uh, safety crucial personnel, which could be yeah, your pit security folks. It could be uh, medics working in there. It could be fire and rescue team working in there for whatever reason. you got to get a place for photographers to go. I was about to say, I was like, I've seen go. lots of camera people. There. Yeah, exactly. All of that <laughs> stuff. Or if you're going to use, you know, confetti cannon or whatever at the end of the show, you don't want to have that right in the audience. So you need a safe space to put it. So the stage front barrier is 
creating or delineating a safe and working space. And it's easy to overlook that. That's that's a super important part of what it's there for. So let's go back to your your the, the show you just described. You know, you know the, the, the folks are there going, well, we can afford bike rack. We, we, we don't know where to go to get, uh, you know, proper stage front barrier. What do we do? I would say what you do first off is go to uh, a trusted local technical contractor, lighting, staging guys, uh, audio, whatever. If they're the people that you know, ask them. And they will most likely know in your local region, I know who's got that stuff. You need to call so-and-so or call such a company. Or we, we stock that. That's, that's part of what we can offer. Um, so that would be step one. Find out where you can get it. Um, uh, I wouldn't say there is a numeric value at which you go, ah, I've got X number in my audience. We've clicked over that critical point uh, that we must have it. Yeah, if I've got a million people, you definitely need it. <laughs> if you've got, you got a 500 people, you might still need it depending on the circumstances of your show. If you've got a really lively show, you know it's going to create dynamics, which means people moving around. So that's uh, you know, energetic, aggressive, feisty dancing and movement in the crowd. It, you could need a front stage barrier with a relatively small number of people because they are going to be bashing into stuff. Um, it's, it's my favorite answer. The answer to the question, do I need it, is it depends. It, it depends. <laughs> but okay, so what I don't want to do is just people who are looking for some help here just go, yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, uh, well, you just told me I've got to make my own mind up. And that was the question I was asking, you know, hey, <laughs> where do I go? The place to go for the answer to that is the ESA. If you're struggling and you're not sure what to do, drop us an email and we will free of charge come back to you with some basic advice on where we think you should go. Depending cool, on your and I'm, I'm going to drop this email address early today, guys. Podcast at eventsafetyalliance.org. Send, send those cards and letters that way, and I will make sure that it gets to who it needs to get to. Yeah. The, the safety of the public at any gig in the world is, is of interest to me. You know, it's not, it doesn't matter if I'm making money out of it. The safety of the public at any place in the world is important to me. And if someone calls and says, hey, Tim, do you think I need barricade or not? Then I'll give you an answer. So, yeah. I mean, you, that's the whole point. It's like the ESA is, a, is basically a, a member-driven volunteer organization. Sorry, and I'm, I'm doing this like little pitchy thing. Um, but it's because we actually care. We actually care that, that no one gets hurt in the audience or on the stage at any event. All right, back yeah. to barricades. Okay, <laughs> so whatever you do, don't just use bike rack. Uh, unless you are absolutely certain that the biggest load it's going to have against it is like a, you know, a two-year-old who's leaning on it for their first steps. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's adorable. He's a bit old, that's isn't it? Probably a bit younger. Eighteen, <laughs> taking their first baby steps at your gig. If you've got a gig where that's happening down in the front, you're cool. Don't worry about it. Use bike rack. You don't need a stage barrier. Um, but really, much beyond that, and if you've got multiple hundreds in front of a stage, yeah, you really need to think about it. Um, can I just pop back to um, the sort of physical construction? So this stuff can be made out of steel, it can, but it's generally made out of um, uh, alloy these days, or aluminum, I should say, is the most common, but it could be steel. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's still some steel panels in circulation. With the cost of gas going up all the time, driving this around the planet <laughs> is more expensive than making it, so <laughs> people go for aluminum. Um, so that the, the physical shape of it is super important. And also the way that the individual sections join is important. So- What do you mean? Uh, when you have a stage barricade, you don't just have a single piece of this and then a gap and then another piece and then a gap, you know, because otherwise people will just fall through the gaps. So it needs to join up yep. and it needs to join up really, really robustly. It needs to join up so that when you push on one piece, it shares that load with the adjacent pieces so that it's kind of activating the stability of the whole run. And each bit's leaning on it, literally leaning on its neighbor. So if you get a sort of punching load in, in a couple of sections of it, that way, that, that loading can be distributed across. So, diffuse across the whole yeah. system. At that yeah, point. so the, the, the joints between them need to be stiff and getting back to physics. So you remember your, um, your forces, they need to be able to resist a shear force between the two barricades there's a shear force between them. So it's got to be stiff enough there to resist that. They also need to be held together so that they don't kind of wobble about. Um, and I've never yet been to an outdoor flat show, 
you know, everyone says, don't worry, the land's really level. But when you actually get to it and you're trying to put, uh, you know, a 12 millimeter pin into a 12 and a bit millimeter hole, you realize what flat actually means. So those junctions need to be really rigid and robust uh, and capable of taking significant load. So it's not just about the panel. It's about how do the panels link? How do they work as a line rather than just an individual thing? And that then leads us on to probably the most difficult big or question for bigger gigs is what shape does that line need to be? Okay, wait, wait, because that's a huge question that that's a ginormous question. But before that, I want to go back. Sure. Because because I'm I'm a, a proud member of the the kiss. Keep it simple uh, thing. Who's putting this stuff together? Is this something that like the stage crew puts together and and because you're talking about on the site with the pins who, who's installing this stuff okay that's a really really good question um on the biggest gigs i would say it has to be it, it must be a specialist contractor or a specialist vendor who comes in generally speaking they will own that equipment and they will provide their own people to deploy it onto the ground unstack it out of the truck, drive it around in forklifts to where it needs to go, follow the plan that's been agreed with the organizer, bolt the damn thing together. And um, be sure you know, that it's right. Ensure that it's right. <laughs> and I'll come to that because I got a little kind of mental section about how to sign off and complete it. Make sure that it's good to go. They come and give a sign off certificate or declaration to the production to say, hey, we're done. It's exactly as you asked for. Um, then they kiss it goodnight and either somebody else takes responsibility for it or they kiss it goodnight and stand by um, and be available to help during the show because it's a very active monitoring thing it's not a fire and forget kind of piece of kit or it shouldn't be um on on the smallest of shows i would say if you're using barricade for the first time don't do it yourself you need someone this, to come and show my you point. I was, I was like you know, I've you seen need... people just dump a load of bike rack and, you know, then the hands are like. Uh, yeah, but we're not bike talking about bike rack. No, bike... I know that. But I'm like, is this the same sort of thing? But no, it it's be. not the same sort of thing. I mean, even the, most simplistic thing, <laughs> even the most simplistic thing, I could go to a stack of bike rack and pick it up and know that I'm going to leave or spend the next five seconds with the same number of fingers. You go and try and pick up a piece of front stage barricade. You don't know how to do it. You could easily lose fingers. I mean, easily, because it, it scissors, it hinges. It's heavy as heck, even though it's made out of aluminum. Um, stacking it back in the truck is harder because it's concertinaing up rather than opening. But nonetheless, you should not be doing this if it's the first time you've ever seen this stuff. So at the top end where you've got a mega gig, you need a vendor to come do it. At the bottom end where you've got a micro gig and you're using it for the first time, get a vendor to come and do it, show you how it works, show you how it fits together, show you what's good, what's bad, and what, what you should be looking for. In the middle ground there somewhere, there's maybe a, there's maybe a handful of gigs where actually <laughs> doing it yourself is possible. However, um, it takes time, it takes skill, it takes knowledge, and it, you're taking a massive responsibility on yourself saying, we will do this just to supply us with the kid. Um, the, the most famous two or three vendors around the world that I know don't do dry rental. Because okay. it's so, it's so right. important. They, they don't want the liability either. No, of, of course you they don't. up their stuff. You know, it's a bit like uh, someone saying, hey, can I come and rent an aircraft? <laughs> yeah, you can, but first of all, I need to see your pilot's license and your insurance and all that kind of stuff. So it's not quite as complicated as an aircraft, but uh, there we go. Um, but still, all right. So let's go several months before, hopefully, at least several months before we're installing this stuff, where we're deciding, we've decided we need it. We figure yeah. out who it's coming from. How yeah. do we know where to put it? Which yeah, great question. Yeah, great question. Okay, where do we put it? Um, you know, there's an easy answer to some of this, and there's uh, then there's phenomenally complex answers that the best minds in the world are still working on. Right, because because I've seen people argue all sorts of different shapes, and I am agnostic yeah. as to which one is the best because I don't know enough about it. Okay, let's start with a simplistic mom and pop type gig, uh, little outdoor stage. Doesn't have to be outdoors; could be indoor stage, um, flat stage front. 
you know, maybe it's uh, 30 foot wide. I would suggest if you're going to use barricade on there, great, there's lots of applications where you should have barricade in front of a stage that small. You want to put it, I would say anything between the least away from the stage would be about six foot um, um, up to mm, 10 foot from the stage, depending on what's going on in there. So you need space for your photographers, space for your security staff to work. And bear, uh, when I say six foot, I mean from the upright. So one and a half feet is taken up with the back foot of the barricade. So actually, you've and, got and guys, the back foot it includes a little platform thing that that people can stand on. So it yeah. is actually something sticking out. It's There's not something it. ground level. Yeah, imagine you've taken a T and you've inverted that T, that's what it, the cross section looks like. And now from the top of the uh, vertical bit to the back of the T on the, on the right-hand side, let's draw a diagonal line. And that's your bracing struts. So we've got a T with a diagonal uh, joining two ends. Um, and then in the, so let's walk around the other side of that T and now we're looking at the, the, the back face where those two diagonals come down in most designs, but not all, in most designs, they are joined with a step that sits horizontally latches in and that's what locks the diagonals in place and that step is itself a super important part of what the barricade does and how you use it so i can talk about the step right now but just let's, let's come back let's to come the back step to that. let's talk about <laughs> shape um so across in front of a relatively small stage a straight line is absolutely fine not a problem just do a straight line parallel with the edge of the stage and you know, when, it, when you've come to the very edges, so say we've got a 30 foot wide stage, you've got 30 foot of um, uh, a front stage barrier, then you get to the edge, you might go, well, can, do we just stop right here? You know, do we just literally stop and there's fresh air or do we change to a different barrier type? It depends on who you've got on your stage. It depends on whether at that very edge, have you still got a really good view of the stage? Can you still see the action? Is there likely to be some pressure there? And if the answer to any of that is yes, then keep going a little bit with your barricade. Go another three or four segments off stage on both sides so that you're kind of over, like an umbrella. If I bought an umbrella that was exactly the same size as me, <laughs> that's <what it> was. <laughs> so we need to kind of go over the edges a little bit. And in my instance, that means quite a big umbrella, um, but you gotta go beyond the immediate central part of the stage. Uh, and then you can tail off in, in bike rack or um, block and mesh fencing or whatever else where you know there's going to be no pressure because there's nobody's going to stand there because they can't see anything. Um, for bigger shows, um, we get into real complexity with barriers uh, and barricade lines because the barricade starts to do a whole bunch of different things um, when you get to a substantial audience size. So in some instances, people use barrier to designate between VIP sections, or you've bought this flavor of ticket, you're allowed in here. You've bought that flavor of ticket, you're going someplace else. So the barricade is, is fulfilling in some instances, you know, a kind of a financial function for distinguishing between the expensive seats and the cheaper seats, <laughs> or the cheaper standing, because uh, generally you don't use it if people are seated. Um, in really big shows, we may start saying, well, we can't have an audience that is 50,000 in front of this stage with just a single barricade across the front because we need to do a couple of things. And this is maybe, should have, I should have put this in earlier. Barricade provides several different critical services and functions to the organizer. First is resisting pressure as the audience push against it. So imagine you've got a, a great big uh, open area um, and people are naturally going to want to come towards the stage. For certain kinds of entertainment, it's worse than others. For rock and roll bands, people want to be near the star. For DJs and EDM, they're happy to be further back and look at it on video. Uh, you know, so even, even with a 50,000 audience, it depends. It depends. Depends who you're doing. Um, <laughs> but I would always want to see what we would call a secondary barrier. So the one right at the stage is called the primary. It's the first barrier. A secondary barrier is maybe put 15, 20 meters further back into the arena or into the field. And that prevents pressure from the back of the field being exerted on those poor souls who came in super early and got to the front and they're now squished because there's 49,999 people behind them trying to get closer to the act. It's a wave break. 
it's a wave break ish yeah but is it a wave or is it yeah anyway whatever it's a, it's a second i was thinking like like you know like you put the they, they have them in near big bodies of water where they put something yeah. in to, to mitigate the forces coming to the beach exactly yeah so those forces are coming uh, it's exactly like a wave so it's coming from one might assume from the back of the arena forwards towards the stage so you put a secondary barrier in there and sometimes you might even put a third or a tertiary barrier in there all good we can understand that so it depends how big your audience is how dispersed they are now, one of the things that is really clear from not just my observation, but many, many people before me and many, many people have done more gigs than I, is that when you're stood at the stage, a lot of the movement of the crowd is not towards and away from the stage. It's not front back. The movement, and with that movement comes pressure, generally goes side to side across the front of the stage. That's more common to see movements of people uh, from side to side than it is front to back. It's partly to do with human physiology. Um, it's partly to do with the fact that, you know, generally speaking, we put barriers in to prevent big waves from the back. Um, but I would say, not without exception, but for the vast majority of cases where I've seen waves come through an audience that mean they either fall down um, or, you know, that are serious threats to well-being, it generally goes sideways across the stage, in which case a flat barrier across the front of the stage is doing nothing to prevent that energy moving all the way across. So um, in more evolved uh, situations, uh, the organizer will sometimes put um, a finger barrier, you know, li literally a thrust of a finger um, with barricade on both sides of it. So you've got a safe working area in the middle um, to prevent the transfer of that energy across. In more developed scenarios, that finger barrier keeps creeping forward and then flares out again to join the secondary. So you've now made sort of three sides. The audience come in from the side and they have got stage barricade on their left side, in front of them and behind them and on the flip side of the stages. I'm not describing it as well. And is, is that when people talk about a T barricade, is that what yeah, they're talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking about. So. Um, uh, yeah, so this, this, the, the barricade reaches out into the audience and then flattens out at 90 degrees. So you've got the primary and then parallel to it, there's a secondary, you know, let's call it 20 meters out into the audience, maybe less, 20 meters a bit too far. But that Gives kind you of a great, great place for you to run cables to the front of house mix. Yeah, um, <laughs> and the, those then get joined. So you've got a central spine that goes kind of from the stage out into the crowd directly. So that's going at 90 degrees to the stage front um, mm -hmm. and the other two runs are going parallel. Um, so you get these kind of segments of the crowd and depending on the size of your gig, you might end up with two of those or three of those. Um, and then another set of segments behind the front of house. So it's, it's great, as you say, for running cables, but more <laughs> importantly, what it allows you to do is a arrest the movement of potentially harmful energy through the crowd as people bash into each other and create a wave that moves um, that could skittle people to the floor and when they're on the floor they're in trouble b it provides a, a safe working zone for security for medics for observers who can get into the crowd they can get deep into the crowd and still have a safe place to work at big stages and big events, big festivals, if you're in the middle of the crowd and you need to get out for a reason of, I don't know, it could be personal safety or well-being, or it could be because you're busting for a pee, you know, you need to get out and you're surrounded by 20,000 other people, you haven't got many options. But what the barricade does is provides an escape route. It's literally a route out. And in some instances, the only exit available. You can't fight your way back through the crowd. And when things get very compressed and dense in a, in a crowd, um, you, you know, it's, it's physically difficult to move through. Um, when a crowd becomes at a density of more than four people in a square meter, sorry for being metric on you, um, four people in each square meter, 
in order to move through that crowd, you have to physically push people out of the way. You have to make body contact with them and kind of force your way through that crowd, which a lot of people will find difficult and uncomfortable. When you're getting to five and six a square meter, which is not uncommon at big concerts, um, then that becomes physically quite demanding and your opportunity for getting out through the crowd is quite limited. So having a barricade that reaches like fingers into the audience, almost like fern leaves or palm leaves, coming from a central spine and every you know regularly is is kind of branching out sideways that gives people an exit route um so it's doing all sorts of different things and then of course if we have to recover someone over the barrier because they need help they need to go to medical or whatever having the barrier reach deep into the crowd makes it possible it's never easy but it makes it possible to get to people and possible to get them to medical or a, a you know a water station or whatever it is that they need to um, to happily carry on with the gig um, so that design is really really uh, fundamental and there are certain key things that one would wish to ensure and key things that you have to avoid so let's start with the avoid first um, yeah. avoid having too much space without some kind of control measure around it so you don't want to have uh, you know, a field of 50,000 people with no barricade around them and no wave break uh, and no central, no way of arresting um, uh, motion uh, and, and dynamics in the crowd. Uh, you need to avoid, if possible, or you need to think, how do people get into here? What are they going to do when they get here? And how do they get out? And your barricade needs to accommodate those things. So if they're all filling in from one side and you've put a, a central thrust all the way to front of house, okay, well, how do those folks get to the other side? How do we not end up with something that's so yeah. lopsided that we've got 80% sure. of the audience on one side of the house? Um, so you need to think of those. You know, so <laughs> none of this is rocket science. It's just give yourself enough time to think about it um, and draw some lines on a map, you know, big felt pen markers they're coming from over stage right okay what we need to do to make sure that we can fill the other side um it's that kind of thing and avoiding wherever possible avoiding uh funneling people so that as they move forward and people generally will move forward during an event that they're not always stepping forward increasing density and increasing the um uh, the potential for uh disastrous conditions to arise um so, you know, that's a really key thing. Uh, avoid, well, there are a couple of simplistic, really stupid things. You know, avoid or make sure your barrier is well enough built that people can't get their toes under it. Oh, God. Exactly. So, you know, I said earlier about, you know, realizing actually what the word flat means. You know, when your barricade sits on a grass in a park, you know, you've gone to a lovely park and you look at it on the first day and you go, hey, this is like a football field. It's great. Uh, and then when you actually lay the barrier out, you find that there's kind of here and there, there's little four inch gaps where um, people can get their toes underneath that leading edge, that foot plate that I was talking about earlier. So imagine you've got oh. your foot under there and a wave comes through. And the people crowd. wear those like flip flops. I mean, I'm, I'm wearing yeah. steel toes today, guys. Uh, but you know, it's like people wear flip flops and sandals and, and those it. mesh sneakers and ah, oh, well, that, that's a nasty very, injury. I'm very uncomfortable right now. <laughs> make sure your barricade does not have gaps on the top rail. So imagine most of the barricade comes up to a sort of tube along the top, you know, like mm -hmm. a scaffolding tube that has mesh on the front. Yeah and the bracing on the back. Uh, where those two sections join, ideally there is no gap at all. You know, there's no place that you could get a finger or a bit of your tummy as you're pushed against it. And a bit of your tummy gets, you know, gets nipped. And I've seen it. And I've seen, you know, teams of people having to wrench the barrier apart to release some poor person who's got their kind of armpit <laughs> kind of caught. <laughs> or you know snapped into the barrier because the wave comes across or the barrier moves right. just by a few millimeters you know the thing's not flapping around but it opens up a little tiny bit your the underside of your arm goes in there because you're leaning on it it snaps back together again you know a millisecond later and you're pinched it's, so ouch. make sure your barrier is not like that either uh, and it is super simple stuff you know it could be uh, uh gaffer tape may be good enough to stop folks getting into there or if there's a if you can't solve it with some simple tape, you know, 
a piece of a piece of timber in there or something to stop the barriers coming back together again if they're naturally resting and there's a gap but i'm not going to tell anybody how to lay a barricade that's a specialist right. job that the but it's a very good these are great examples as to why you want to consult someone who knows how to do this as opposed yeah, to yeah exactly but the nonetheless the organizer should walk the barricade or their designated safety professional or someone on their team should walk the barricade even if you've had the best promise in the world from the most reliable person you ever met and they say don't worry boss it's all good get out there look at it yep. run your hand along the top and if you feel sharp bits gaps snags changes in level changes in angle stop look at it and go ha huh, could this could this yeah, this, this could be, or no, it's okay here. That's we'll accept that, and and look along the front that front edge of the footplate. Depending on which age and stage of barrier you're using, some of them come with a chamfered leading edge that comes down almost to not quite a point, um, but it lays very nice and flat on the ground. Others just come to a ninety degree end. You know, there, there's just a box section of of, of alloy at the uh, the leading edge. So just make sure that it, there's no trip hazards, you know, simple stuff that you can't get your foot under it, that you can't get your fingers in it. You can't get kids at the front putting their fingers because they want to play with the gaffer tape and they want to fiddle <laughs> things and they stick their fingers in where they shouldn't. So just make sure that it's smooth and safe. All right. So I want to go back with the whole planning thing. Um, how does how does all the, the different barricade configurations you know, how does that affect egress? Well, it does affect egress because you are defining, you know, basically a hard architecture that people need to get into and, and leave from. So mm -hmm. it affects egress. And if you have um, if you have a venue where all of the exits are on one side, well, just like all of the entrances on one side is the same kind of thing, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. Then zipping the arena into two and people can't get from one to the other, this is bad capital B. People need to be able to get to an exit. So regardless of what your barrier shape is, your requirements to meet fire code to get people out in time in case of, you know, some ghastly thing happening in the venue, nothing to do with the show, but the boiler room's caught fire and we all need to leave. Right. Um, the barricade can't be in the way. So you need to be smart in how you lay it out. Um, again, this is, it's back to kind of enlightened risk assessment you've got to look at it and go well if we put this here they can't go from that oh crikey we can't do that there let's put the vip on the other side or let's flip stuff around but again i suspect we're getting into territory where anyone who's listening to this who's designing complex indoor barricade systems doesn't need to listen to me to work out what to do <laughs> they should it's just important to think that you know the the barricade is solving one problem but you can't not consider the other yeah, factors absolutely, absolutely absolutely right absolutely right and in some instances you know i've seen plenty of shows where there's just too much metal in the field where you know you've got a you know the barrier like i described with you know various veins coming off a central spine and then you've got a um an, an ada viewing ramp you know a, a platform rather where folks are there you know with mobility the impairment or other um, you know requirements so they get a a good viewing spot and they put stage barricade nearly said mojo then um they put stage <laughs> barricade around that and you get two or three delay towers and we'll put some barricade around that so camera positions going in there as well so it's like that and all this barricade has a footprint both in front and behind it and you end up losing territory to metal so, and you end up losing circulation routes to metal and you end up losing evacuation routes to metal. Um, so, you know, if that's beginning to happen and you're seeing a footprint, we go, geez, we've kind of lost the field of this being an open field because we've now got 800 pieces of barricade out there, uh, then do something different. Okay, so now I think, I think with your permission, this is a good time to talk about the people that are working with the barricade during the event right yeah that's where we're i think that's where we are yeah i mean we started off with um you know the design concept of physical sort of design of a, a barrier piece uh we talked about how they zip together we talked about uh, a bit about what the line the shape is that they need to make and uh barricade is not it's not a kind of 
it's not an install and forget thing. It needs to be managed. It needs to be actively and proactively managed and monitored. So there's two kind of uh, two aspects to that. One is to make sure that the metal is doing what it needs to do and continues to be safe. So every show at the close of play, if you're doing a weekend festival, you know, a reinspection of the barricade before you open the following day. And if you've had certain kind of highly dynamic acts on, you need to be reinspecting that barricade almost constantly. If you've got a multi-stage festival site, then you've got a team who are going from one stage to another, just making sure that it's okay. Um, so that's one aspect of it. The other though is that you can't just stick the barrier up and expect everything suddenly and magically to be safe. You know, we we bought Mojo in, surely it's good now. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, you need people to operate on it and from it. So this goes back to the point you made, Danielle, about the, the back step. So on the back of most pieces of stage front barrier, there's built into it a rigid, solid metal step that allows a person who's in the secure side of the barrier to be able to stand up on that step and observe into the crowd and you know stand up and look. But critically also to stand up, reach over, support, rescue, yank out or jump over or whatever it is they may need to do to support the safety of people who are in front of the barrier. Um, there's a great design that um, I'm very happy to, to see um, uh, used uh, quite frequently in the UK. I've not seen it elsewhere, I'm thinking hard. I think I saw a bit of it in Hong Kong, um, uh, which is a step extension, which means that you're not kind of hopping from one little isolated foot plate to another. There's actually, imagine a piece of stage deck is custom built to lock onto the back of the, the barricade and it gives a, the security staff a deep step to work on so they can work as a team if they're having to recover someone from the audience two or three of them can stand together dynamic lifting you lift the person up and over you're not just throwing them down to the floor <laughs> behind the barricade um, they can come down to a, a platform that's the same level um, and that deep step is super important if you've got a busy stage barricade where you've got multiple dozens if not hundreds coming over um, for some acts um, so the, the the barricade is is actively monitored and managed it is a place of safe working for medics for security for photographers for technicians for sometimes the band themselves you know very common that the you know usually the singer because uh, they're unencumbered with the guitars and so on you know goes <laughs> down into a space where they can perform closer to the crowd uh, and if that's planned, then there's nothing wrong with it. You look at a band like, um, I don't know, 21 Pilots, you know, they go out onto the crowd. The drum kit is there on a deck and it's they go into the, you know, it's that whole kind of uh, eliminating the fourth wall of the stage and going out into the crowd is a major part of what those guys do. And it can be really exciting and really effective performance techniques. Um, but that requires really close management of what's going on in that area of the pit. It's not about the metal work now. It's about how do we use it and manage it uh, and monitor it. Who's allowed in there? You know, guests of the band think they can go and stand in the stage pit. No! Because you know, then we end up with, you know, <laughs> That sounds like people. a terrible idea. <laughs> it's a terrible idea, but I see it again and again and again. Um, and luckily, I'm never the person who's down there having to yell at them and say, no, you can't come here. Um, but that's a really important working area. And imagine you have a situation where you've got to get somebody out of the crowd who's, you know, suffered an injury or, you know, whatever, and you need to get them out and they're on a stretcher or they're being carried or whatever. You don't want to have to be barging people out of the way saying, excuse me, mate, do you mind if we just get through, you know. Right. It's, it's, it's kind be, of a, it's a, it's, it's a hazardous work zone. You, you don't want. Guests it's a really in. hazardous work zone. And, and whilst guests are not going to get injured by being in the pit, they can worsen the injuries and the difficulty of others because they're in the damned way. Um, right, they, they, impede, in the they way. impede the work. <laughs> they impede the work, yeah. Um, so I'd, I would always expect a stage pit. So we've drifted from the metal now to the, the operational side of it. A stage pit is a really active place and it's a really dynamic place. And it needs to be somewhere where the staff who are working, who are doing a critical job to protect the, the individuals in the audience, uh, they need to be able to work freely. They need to have line of sight. They need to be able to communicate, 
because of the strange and crazy conditions we have in front of stages where it's kind of averaging 110 dB or whatever, you know, they can't have a normal conversation. So they need to have different modes of communication and line of sight um, and, and tactile communication is really important as well. You know, touching and grabbing and helping and holding people to send instructions through your skin um, is a key part of what goes on in there. And it sounds a bit weird, but it's true. Well, you know, look at a good pit crew working and they're, you know, tapping each other on the shoulder there. There's, you can't do it if it's full of hangers on. Um, sorry, it's my daughter cutting pumpkins with her friends in the kitchen. <laughs> So uh, guys, regardless of when you're hearing this, we are recording on October 26th, so we are just a couple of days from from Pumpkin Day. Pumpkin Mayhem, yeah, so I got three, uh, three teenage girls here uh, wielding sharp tools in the kitchen whilst I... Oh, lovely. Uh, <laughs> so you're, ta you're talking about a safety thing and there... What could uh, possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? There's a risk assessment for you. Um, um, so, so I would say, for example, I mean, just uh, I, I'm aware that we're getting close to the, to the end of our allotted uh, spot. But, um, you know, if if your plan for audience safety revolves around getting loads of metal and you haven't got a showstop plan or you haven't got a communications plan between the pit and the stage deck or you haven't explained which side people take casualties off, or which side the photographers come on from and go off from and who's managing that little micro piece of territory um you know if you haven't got a designated pit supervisor don't spend your money on metal spend your money on time to plan and think and get the right people in the room so that you can provide a safe gig so the metal doesn't make it safe the metal provides an opportunity for the organizer to promote safety with other resources it could be cctv it could be yeah, whatever. Um, a bunch of other things that we've already touched on. Um, so I want to, uh, since as you mentioned, we are getting close to time. One of the, the uses of not this kind of barricade, but barricade in general that we haven't talked about is hostile vehicle mitigation. Mm, no, that's jumping to a whole different podcast, that one. Well, exactly. Um, but I wanted to, uh, I didn't want to, us to not touch on it all and partly because this is not an appropriate tool for that well, absolutely right um <laughs> okay <laughs> you know again because i've i've seen people be uh you know people are obviously reacting in real time to uh increasing or perceived threat and they're thinking of ways yeah. to do it this is um, not that I'm... tool <laughs> Uh, it, it's not really that tool, no. Uh, but, you know, having said that, um, you know, smart use of pretty much any, any uh, materials can assist in making a target less desirable for a random attack or a, a planned attack. So target hardening, you know, is, is possible uh, with some of the other materials we've talked about. You use the phrase hostile vehicle mitigation. So let's just unpick that a bit. What that, to my mind, means is big lumps of stuff to stop people driving vehicles into an audience or into a queue or somehow using a vehicle as a weapon. That is what I meant, yes. Yeah, so in order that. to prevent <laughs> a vehicle being used as a weapon, you know, that you've kind of got two, two or possibly three different ways of achieving it. The easiest way that most of us end up doing is just finding big lumps of matter stuff <laughs> which could be concrete blocks, it could be metal, it could be sandbags, it could be other stuff that relies on its own mass to stop the truck. You know, it's just a big enough lump um, that people can't drive through. So you put those lumps in a, in a sensible plan so that the audience can still filter through the gaps, but a fast vehicle can't come through. This is not really about mitigating vehicle-borne bombs. No. You know, this uh, that's a different thing. This is about stopping a momentum attack. Uh, the other ways that that can be done with much more lightweight stuff is, you know, uh, stingers. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with those, the sort of vehicle, uh, sorry, tire popping concertinas. Oh, okay. Because in, in my world, a stinger is a thing you use to extend power. Oh, yeah. It's okay. just like, that is something different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that's you you mean something that, like, pops tires. It's a very lightweight police tool and pretty ineffective. But you can also get them in much more kind of um, 
stingers on steroids that are fixed and the spikes kind of go into the bottom of the vehicle and lift it off the floor and all that at that point my friends you're involving Mm -hmm. your local law enforcement exactly (laughs) um so bike rack front stage barrier uh hoarding met barrier any name you want to call it you know that stuff is not good for hostile vehicle mitigation it's good for blanking off areas and stopping snipers being able to see the target um but it's not going to stop a bullet uh, so you know i wouldn't be relying on any of the products we've described today to assist with hostile vehicle mitigation uh, that needs to be either a big lump of something um uh, or a, 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 a smart bit of technology um, in the UK, we have, um, uh, you know, guidelines on what can actually be called hostile vehicle mitigation, and it needs to pass all kind of specific tests about resisting an impact of a truck at X weight traveling at Y miles an hour, or if it was a bomb, you know, does it fragment and cause loads of shrapnel, which is worse, or yada, yada, yada. But really, mostly what we end up doing on gigs from the civilian side, from the non-police and um, military side, is we're doing vehicle calming. Ah, okay. We're putting out blocks and barricade and barriers and stuff to slow people down, to make it really, really difficult to come and hit the back of our queue, make it really, really difficult to sneak in back a house um, yep. without having Deterrent. a Yeah, so you're, deter- you're deterring people um, rather than, you know, massively and completely. Because we're there, usually we're there for a relatively short period. You know, we're there for mm-hmm. a couple of weeks at most. Um, it's not like a shopping mall where it's worth them investing in rising bollards that come out from right. the floor to protect their garages um, or other more permanent sort of infrastructure. Right. It's to not a big, it's not a government building or any of those things. It's exactly. It's there and then it's gone. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that, that kind of uh, investment in infrastructure is impractical um, both for you know, in terms of our timeline, but also in terms of our pocketbook. Okay. So thank you for that side quest there. Um, what final thoughts, what did I not remember to ask about? What What other things should we think about when it comes to this particular topic? That's a really good question. Um, don't be complacent. That's great advice, just in you general. Know, just don't be <laughs> complacent. And even with, you know, I work with a lot of different clients and with my, you know, kind of most trusted clients who I spend the longest amount of time talking about barrier shapes and all the rest of it. You know, we're, we're never complacent. The, the client is always wanting to change and review and come back. And is this right? Can we check? Can we improve? Can we improve? Can we do better here? Is it okay? Was that okay? We saw this, we saw that. What can we do to change it? So I think even at the top of the game globally, um, there isn't a simple answer. You know, we, we have to keep changing and improving and, and reviewing. Um, uh, I would say don't rely on metal. And there's brilliant metal out there. There's fantastic designs, variable corners, gates, emergency right. gates, you know, there's all, you know, every bit of the- It's, it's a tool. It's a tool, and the tool needs to be needs to be, you know, installed and operated by the by competent people who keep paying attention. You know, a lathe is great for changing the shape of things, but you really got to have an <laughs> operator who knows what they're doing. Who knows to get, how to use a lathe? <laughs> to get a, yes, to get the right outcome. Um, so think of it in the same way. You know, um, manage your barricade, no matter how big it is. Manage your barricade. It's, it's, it doesn't work on its own. It needs help. It needs humans. Well, I think that sums it up nicely. You know, safety is a journey. We we learn from our previous experience. No better, do better, and and it's all about the people operating the stuff, not the not the shiny toy, regardless of what its purpose or design is. I think that's all fantastic. So, Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. I I feel smarter already. Uh, guys, you can still register for the weather event in January. So check that out at eventsafetyalliance.org. We'd love to have you join us for that. Can I register for that? I don't see why you couldn't. Why couldn't you? I want to come. So if anybody wants to come and ask a barrier or a weather person. Uh, There you go. Guys, there's a hook. Hopefully I'll be there. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, everybody. And stay safe. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel.